Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, everybody out there. Welcome to a can't miss episode of Smart People Podcast. I'm one of the hosts, Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. And I say it's can't miss because today we deal with the topic of survival, life, and death. I'll tell you this in any fight, it's the guy who's willing to die who's going to win that itch. And I know if I'm going to have any life anymore, it's because I'm still willing. To fight and die for that age. We had to go with that. That's one of our all-time favorite speeches. That's Al Pacino, his inspirational speech in the movie Any Given Sunday. Sunday. We used to listen to that before our flag football games and get amped up just to go pull flags, not hit anybody. But it's actually a really good speech. We'll put a link up on our Facebook page and whatnot. If you haven't heard it, first climb out of your hole and then make sure you listen to it. It talks about life's a game of inches and everything you do can affect things. And today... We're going to talk to an author. His name is Lawrence Gonzalez. He wrote a book called Deep Survival, Who Lives, Who Dies, and Why. And it's a bunch of true stories of endurance, sudden death, how people survive. Why did one person on a plane get out in time? Why the other person sat there frozen? What would you do in a terrifying event? Would you know exactly what to do, where to go? Have you prepared? It's a crazy thought because we live in this bubble of security that is not true. It's not there. And as much as we try to believe it, you need to prepare yourself for things. 
things like on a plane, check the check the life vests underneath. You know, look at actually where the exits are because it does make a difference. It's proven to. And today, Lawrence is going to talk to us about that. Lawrence is an author of several books, and he's won two National Magazine Awards and the Distinguished Service Award from the Society of Professional Journalists. You know, he's a smart guy and writes very interesting books. Great author. And he, he does. The way he ties his own stories in, he is a self-professed kind of adrenaline junkie, if you will. He flew like stunt planes and he went with firefighters and he's just done a lot of cool stuff because he likes to know what it's like on the edge of survival. It has fascinated him since his father's death, which he gets into at the at the beginning of the episode. So we're going to turn it over here to Lawrence in a minute. I did want to give you a little excerpt from his book that I think is it's just telling of what you're going to read about. He says, you know, one of the many baffling mysteries concerns who survives and who doesn't. And when he talks to some of the scientists who cover it, they say, it's not who you'd predict either. Sometimes the one who survives is an inexperienced female hiker while the experienced hunter gives up and dies in one night, even when it's not that cold. The category that has one of the highest survival rates is children six and under, the very people we're most concerned about. Despite the fact that small children lose body heat faster, they often survive in the same conditions better than experienced hunters. And he goes on to talk about why, and it's simple things like, Older people think they know where they're going and they'll keep going down a trail or they'll ignore thirst and hunger and they'll just keep going where the child doesn't know any better. He doesn't have these preconceived notions. He does what his body tells him. He stays put. If it's cold, he gets in a tree. He does these things. And it's just a way to think about what you're doing next time, whether it be hiking or he talks about how he talks to businesses and CEOs a lot. He talks about how to overcome adversity, how to stick through it and things like that. So it can be brought to all aspects of life, which I think, John, you actually go into a little bit more in the interview with him. Yeah, I do. I talk about, you know, these are he lists out 12 survival steps, but you can apply it to everyday life, whether it be at your job, in a relationship, just really anything. And it's it's mind blowing the fact that you can take survival skills and apply it to everyday life. And as always, he uses the science behind survival. He talks to a lot of smart people. He goes through stories. He talks to expert climbers who have climbed Mount Everest and just crazy stuff. So Lawrence is a great guy. Before jumping into the interview, I wanted to remind you guys, the holiday season's coming up. It's time to buy gifts for people. So when you buy gifts, head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of our page, go over to Amazon through our page. Buy the stuff as you normally would, and it gives us a nice little commission, nice little kickback, helps us pay the bills. We really appreciate it, guys. Check us out on Facebook at Smart People Podcast, and give us a like, subscribe to us on iTunes. Now, please, enjoy the episode, Deep Survival by Lawrence Gonzalez. First, thank you for being on the show. As I mentioned prior to, to this interview when we were talking, we got a chance to read your book, Deep Survival. It's incredible. And like I said, I've read a couple of different books on the topic, and yours really stood out to me because you kind of intertwine your background along with your own personal stories, and I think that makes for an awesome read. I know at the beginning you kind of discuss your father's death and the effect that that had on you at the beginning of the book. Can yeah. you tell us a little about that and how that helped prompt you into writing on the subject of survival? Sure. My my dad, by the way, thanks for having me on the show. My father was a combat pilot in World War II. He flew B-17 bombers over Germany. 
and he was shot down at uh, 27,000 feet, and they they blew his left wing off, and the plane spun so violently that it was pulled in half. So he was basically falling in a chunk of wreckage that had all the aerodynamic characteristics of a bathtub, and uh, he fell 27,000 feet and lived. So you know, as a, as a kid hearing about this story, I thought, you know, it was just very strange to me that. First of all, that somebody could survive that, and secondly, he was the only one in his crew who survived. So, so what was the difference between the guy who survives and the guy who doesn't survive? And this was just fascinating to me as a child, and and I think it colored my interest as a writer for the rest of my life. I was interested in dangerous things people do, and I was interested in why certain people survive and others don't. Now, did you get into any dangerous activities? I mean, do you, are you oh, yeah. an adventurous person? What, what What's an example of some of the most dangerous stuff that you've done? I, I flew aerobatics for a number of years. I flew stunt planes, as some people call them, these high-powered little planes you see at air shows. And that was probably the most dangerous thing that I did. I did a lot of adventuring in the wilderness, and I wrote about these things. But I would also just seek out uh, dangerous things to write about. Like I worked on a, I worked on high steel with construction workers building a tall building, a profession where a lot of people get killed. I worked as a firefighter. You know, I was a journalist, but I was actually fighting fires with these guys. So I, I would seek out these things to write about because they seemed very interesting to me. And ultimately, all of this work fed into deep survival when I finally came to write that book. It's funny because I. I don't know. I see some similarities. I, John and I were joking, but I worked at a day job for a while and then I took a trip. I was like, I'm going to hike the Colorado Trail. Now it's a little yeah. different. I only lasted like two days and it started snowing and I was very ill prepared. I thought I could fend off, you know, anything with a machete. But anyways, I, I sought it out for, I guess, the adventure and the, the thought process that comes along with it. I've also thought about, I actually applied to be a, a wildland firefighter out in Arizona. What, really? Yeah. Do you, what is it, do you think, that kind of compels somebody to seek out those things? Is it just curiosity? No, I think that we evolved to take risks. I mean, if you think about where we came from, hunter-gatherer peoples, in order to go hunt an animal large enough to make it worth your while, you had to really, you know, <laughs> be into having an adventure. I'm talking about like 100,000 years ago, right? So, so there's something inherent in us that wants to do that. Now, everybody, we live in a modern culture, and everybody has a different level of risk that they prefer to take. Some people don't want any at all. They want to stay home and be quiet, and others want to climb Mount Everest. But whatever your level of risk is, you're going to seek it. And if you think things are safer, you're going to try to add more risk, take more risk. And if things seem more risky, then you're going to try to take less risk. And this has been demonstrated in a number of interesting ways. When anti-lock brakes were first introduced in Germany, they gave them to taxi drivers and thought, well, the accident, accident rate's going to go down because these guys can stop faster now. And what actually happened was the accident rate went up because the taxi drivers thought, well, I can stop faster, it's safer, so I can go faster. <laughs> so it had the opposite effect. 
uh, of what they intended. This, this theory is called risk homeostasis. It means you try to keep your level of risk the same. So those of us who have a fairly high set point for risk will perceive ordinary life as kind of boring and we'll go looking for, for adventure. To kind of dive into the book a little bit, one of the things I really liked is your research involved looking at a, a lot of cases regarding life versus death. And yeah. in that research, what were some of the craziest stories you encountered and the commonalities? Because, for example, you mentioned scuba divers that die with air still in their tanks. Yeah. That And that was mind-blowing to me. Like having scuba dived a couple of times, it, I mean, I can understand how you'd freak out, but freaking out to that extent, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I know. And there's, a, there's certain people who have um, sort of automatic instinctive reaction to having their mouths covered. And they will take, take the regulator out of their mouth. Basically, they panic. And they are not able to calm themselves sufficiently to say, you know, gee, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be taking this uh, out of my mouth. And they die. So panic is a very interesting thing and, uh, and not very well understood by a lot of people. Essentially, you can think of the brain as having two modes of working. One of them is thinking, rationality, planning, all of that stuff that we associate with being human. The other is an emotional side, an emotional reaction, like a fight-or-flight uh, response, for example, characterized by loads of adrenaline and all of that. And these two states don't coexist very well. So the higher the emotion, the lower the thinking. The higher the rational thinking, the lower the emotion. It works like a seesaw. So if you get an emotional response, it can become very difficult to resist it, depending on who you are and what your training is and what your natural makeup is. But for certain people, that particular emotional response that I mentioned of needing to uncover the face is so powerful that it results in those deaths that you were talking about. So one of the key things that, that we talk about in terms of survival is learning how to control high emotions, which is a matter of training, so that when you're in a situation that requires you, you to think clearly, you can dampen down that emotional state and think. You know, that that's very interesting because we actually just interviewed uh, another author that was was talking about the psychology of the brain in that sense where sometimes people, it takes them longer to perceive a dangerous situation of what's going on. And I guess one of the ways to, to remedy that and, you know, perceive things faster is just to constantly go through training and yeah. be in that situation over and over and over again until you, you can do that when it actually happens. Yes, right. That's, that's exactly what people like the military uh, try to do. You know, there's only so much realism you can get into when you're talking about something like warfare. But the more exposure you have to something in general in a training situation, the better prepared you'll be. I mean, have you seen situations that you are completely blown away that somebody had either enough training or or knew what was going on to get through? I mean, what would you say, you know, one of the crazier stories in the book would be where you saw that? Well, I think Joe uh, Simpson's story is like that. He is a climber. He, he's a guy who wrote a book called Touching the Void, which also became a movie. So he and his partner were climbing in Peru. They're on a 20,000-foot peak descending, and he broke his leg at 19,000 feet in completely snow-covered mountain, very technical climbing, you know, requiring equipment and all that. And you break your leg up there, 
basically you're a dead man. And he knew it. And, and his partner, Simon Yates knew it too, but, but they tried, you know, to work together to get this guy down. And they had a system pretty well set up where Yates was lowering him with a rope and then climbing down to him and putting in a stake and then lowering him again and so forth. And they were doing pretty well when <clears throat> the rope broke, or rather, that's not true. He got stuck, and, and, and his partner had to cut him loose, so he cut the rope. So he fell and fell and fell and fell, and he fell into a crevasse, <laughs> down to the bottom of a crevasse, right? So now he's completely screwed. <laughs> and by a miracle, this guy, this crevasse had filled up with a cone of snow that had just drifted in over time, and he was able to climb this cone and get all the way to the top and get himself out of the crevasse. And the story just goes on and on and on. And every time you think the guy is about dead, why he thinks of something else. And he did, in fact, basically crawl off this mountain and save his own life. A stupendous story. Just a terrific story. And very, very unlikely. For somebody like that, are there certain characteristics that are going to, aside from the training, but maybe, you know, inherent characteristics that are going to lead you to be more successful in a dangerous situation? Are they, are they, yeah. you know, genetic? Are they, what is that? Well, and, and this is really the central business of the book, The Survival, is that it, if you read the Joe Simpson material there, for example, it goes through all of these different characteristics in him that made him able to survive the next step. And and then in the end of the book, I go through and I list these characteristics as the 12 essential characteristics of survival survivors um, so that people can see them all in one place and, and relate them back to the, all the stories that they have been reading. And so, yeah, this is this is definitely what what the book is about. It's about like what are the things that I need to develop in myself to make me ready to face these things when they come, and believe me, they always come. And one of the one of the key points that you you touch on a couple times throughout the book, and especially at the end, is when in doubt, bail out. And yeah. I think that you know, I think that's advice that seems so common sense but people don't take and for, you know for example yeah. when when chris went to do the tr the hiking of the uh, colorado trail at some point he was just like okay i've got a bail on this I, I wasn't prepared how often do you see people pushing themselves to do crazy things when they know they're completely unprepared yeah and now mind you the the 12 rules of survival are assuming you've already failed to obey that rule <laughs> right you're you're already in trouble now right, right? Um, but but the when in doubt bailout is is extremely important and it's just the opposite of what we're evolved to do. I mean we're we're evolved to just keep going forward. The earth is populated because of that, and in fact the system in the brain that governs that moving forward, which involves dopamine and other neurotransmitters, uh, is just really hard to to turn around. And the worse the stress is on you, the harder it is for you to make that decision. So if you're out in the woods and you're hiking, and you've been hiking a long time, and you're tired and dehydrated and pissed off and maybe a little half lost, uh, chances are you're going to be worse at making that decision to bail out than, than otherwise. But once again, we're talking about training and uh, thinking and being able to think clearly uh, about what you're doing. I mean, I know a fellow who was killed because of that impulse. He was on uh, a trail in New York State and was just really on a pretty easy hike. There was nothing difficult about it. 
and he realized he was running low on food and decided to take a shortcut and got turned around and just kept going. And by the time he realized what was going on, he was so profoundly lost that he died out there. I bet that happens more often than we would give credit to, you know? It happens a lot. And so the advice that I give is be careful where you get lost. Search and rescue in the United States is a local matter. And in some places, there are great search and rescue teams like Portland, Oregon. And in other places, there are really, you know, it's handled like by the state police or something like that, the sheriff's office, and it's not very good. So this guy got lost in New York State where the state police have search and rescue wrapped up and they didn't find him. That's a good lead into one of the things I wanted to talk about was in your book, you discuss both staying out of trouble and what to do once you get into trouble, which is the survival aspect. And I guess we just touched on the the staying out of trouble. I guess I then wanted to ask, so once you're there, what is the what have you found to be the best thing that you can do when you're in these life or death situations? What kind of serves people the best? Again, this goes to the twelve things that I that I list in the book. The first one is perceive and believe, which means don't enter into denial. If something bad is happening, you have to admit it before you can do anything about it. So that's the first step. The second step we already talked about a little, which is stay calm. You have to calm your emotional response so that you can think clearly. And then you take the next step, which is to think, to analyze, to plan, to get organized, to figure out what your resources are and figure out what you're going to do with them. And then once you've figured that out and created a plan, you have to actually do something. So taking action is is the next step. In in long-term survival situations, and I include here things like imminent corporate failures or, you know, nasty divorces or a, a battle with cancer, things like that also fit in with this same framework. And it's one of the reasons that, that I deal with people in those situations all the time because these same principles apply. So once you've taken that fourth step and you've done something, you've taken action based on your plan, you should celebrate your, your own success. You should be breaking things down into small steps that you can say, okay, now I achieved that. And that does something very important. It makes you feel good. And feeling good is part of being able to survive in any in any situation. You have to have some positive emotions going forward. The next thing is count your blessings. Be grateful. One of the things that all survivors I interview tell me is that, you know, they felt a feeling of gratitude about, you know, even though they were in a bad situation, that they were doing something and managing it and and that they were ultimately lucky. Another thing that they all do is they play. They turn some of the work they have to do into a game of some kind. They do things like counting steps, like when Joe Simpson was uh, trying to climb down from the mountain at first when he broke his leg. He developed a little pattern. It was almost like a dance where he would hop and skip on one foot and then change his ice axe with the other hand. And So people do these things that are innately playful, let's say. Another step is see the beauty. If you're in a natural environment, there's something beautiful to focus on. In fact, in any environment, there's going to be. And one of the things survivors do to keep their spirits up is they pay, they're able to pay attention to that. And again, positive emotion is a very important thing. They also have this deep conviction that they'll succeed. So they have this belief that they're going to do this. Another thing they do is they it's called survival by surrender. Basically, they give up concern about failure. So Joe Simpson, to use that example again at one point, said, well, it's pretty obvious that I'm going to die, but I'm still breathing, and, you know, I've still got both my hands, so I think I'll just take the next step and try this. 
and that attitude of like, well, I'm, I'll probably fail, but I'm going to keep going anyway, that, that really goes a long way to getting people out of trouble. The 11th step is do whatever is necessary. So have the will and the skill. That means you practice something, you have some skills in reserve, and you're going to do, no matter what, you're going to do the next thing. And the last thing is never give up. Once you're in that life and death situation, whether it's your business life, your social life, or your real life, it's surprising how many people can just give up and stop trying. And so that's the final step of just continuing on. You know, it's it's funny because you mentioned that these survival steps can be applied to, to the business life and then relationships and things of that sort. And after reading those 12 steps and hearing you talk about them, it really is you know, surprising how much you can apply that to any situation in life, especially with relationships, because that first step of, of perceiving and believing what's yeah. going on within that relationship, I mean, that's, you know, that's the hardest part for, I think, humans to get past or like our brains to get past is believing what's going on is actually going on. It's really true. And um, I do a lot of speaking engagements, and most of the speaking engagements are to big corporate groups like uh, financial groups and big businesses and bankers and people like that because they want to know, like, how do you manage risk? And they, they've read Deep Survival and said, oh, man, this is about, this is about decision-making and risk-taking. That's what we do. So it's interesting how broadly this can be applied. And I've even used it, you know, used these ideas like, I gotta clean the garage. How the heck am I gonna do that? I mean, well, I'm just gonna do it like the survivor climbed down the mountain. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna do it one step <laughs> at a time. <laughs> it's true. I mean, you set those small goals, and when you accomplish them, you get that little jolt of joy. I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. And and as a writer, I've I've experienced this too because basically, writing is really a odd behavior. It's a strange throwback craft. You've got these 26 letters, and you're supposed to create the whole world out of 26 letters. And you have to put them down one at a time. I mean, it's really inefficient. And yet people want books, right? And people like to write books. And I, I always look at it when I'm stymied. I think, okay, well, if I write one page a day, that's 365 pages in a year. So I know this can be done. I was, I was actually going to ask you if we could divert from your book real quick and just talk about the, uh, the writing process for a second. I was, yeah. I was very interested to see, you know, what your process was, because, I mean, you mentioned doing the one page a day, but even the, the one page a day thing is pretty tough to do. How did you go about doing it? I mean, where, you know, how did you force yourself to, to sit down and where did you find yourself, you know, most efficient at, at doing writing? Well, so a couple of things about deep survival in particular. One is that it represents an accumulation of knowledge over most of my lifetime because of going back through all these experiences that I had. And then I did several years of research reading about the actual cases that I talk about. There's millions of them. And then in terms of the actual writing, which was the last year, I, I get up very early in the morning. I get up about four because it's really quiet and the phone doesn't ring. And, um, and I write as much as I can for that day. And usually something will happen that will disrupt it and I'll have to go do something else. Like this interview. <laughs> like, like, like an interview, like, a, you know, my mom needs to be taken to the doctor or whatever. You know, life goes on. But it usually doesn't go on at four in the morning, so I get a head start. And my process is not one page a day, although that's a convenient way of thinking about it. I generally will write for as long as I can when I'm in that, in that mode. 
the thing about writing for me anyway is it's not difficult for me to write. It's difficult for me to figure out what it is I want to say. So the actual figuring out what I wanted to say took a very long time. And then once I started the physical writing act of Deep Survival, it really only took about nine months, I would say. I know we're getting uh, short on time here. I did have one other question for you. As I mentioned, I it's funny, I'd read a, a book a while ago about survival, and it was, it, it was uh, concrete advice. Like, for example, it said, when you get on a plane, most people don't pay attention. Pay attention, look for the exits, look for your um, life vest, and things like that. And yeah. sure enough, I swear, the next plane I got on, I reached underneath the seat for the life vest, and it wasn't there. And I pointed out to this the flight attendant, and she was shocked. She was like, oh, my God, this never happens. That's an example of a concrete action to take. What I yeah. wanted to ask you is, is it possible to learn to be more resilient? Is it possible to build the mental fortitude? Because I think that's why I learn about it. I want to believe that I'll survive anything. I don't know if what it is. I'm just like, if if a plane went down, I'm going to be the guy that comes off. Like if yeah. I get, you know, so while speaking to you and you've done all this research, how can I or anyone listening become more mentally strong in anything they approach? Well, first of all, I do believe that it's possible to become more resilient and strong mentally because it's in literature. If you read about, you know, survivors of Nazi concentration camps, you'll see this not in everyone, but in some people, that they become stronger. So since we're not going to a Nazi concentration camp, how do we do that in our day-to-day -day lives? <clears throat> we practice these things in trivial ways. They seem trivial, but they're actually developing habits of mind in us. So for example, are you the kind of person who you got to get somewhere, you're driving, you get stuck in traffic, what do you do? Do you pound on the steering wheel and scream at the guy in front of you and honk your horn, or do you say, well, this is life in the city. I might as well listen to some uh, Brahms on the radio or do something else useful with my time because I'm going to be sitting here with everybody else anyway. So it's little things like that in your life where you can start to learn to behave more adaptively. You can start taking a measure of your own emotional response to things around you. You drop a glass and break it, what do you do? So all of the negative things that happen in your daily trivial life are things that you can begin training yourself to respond to with equanimity. So do you yell at your dog, you know, when your dog has an accident or runs away? These are not con these are not constructive ways of behaving. So the more you can do that in trivial ways, then when something a little bigger happens, you'll bounce back from it better. So if somebody steals your bicycle, that's a slightly larger event, you know, you learn to just shrug it off and so forth and so on right on up to the big stuff. I mean, not only is that great advice, but it's it's also good advice to make you a happier person in general because it's so much easier to pull the negatives yeah. and you you know yell at your dog as opposed to taking the time and teaching the dog what he did wrong and training him to do do it the right way. So I mean, that's that's excellent advice to our listeners. And Lawrence, I I wanted to thank you for coming on our show. You are awesome. Your book is great. Deep survival. And I just wanted to ask you if you had any websites that you wanted to yes. plug and, and also if deepsurvival.com. Deepsurvival.com. Awesome. We'll, deepsurvival.com. We'll link that to our website. You know, best of luck to you and thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun.
Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Lawrence. Hope you were paying attention when he gave his 12 steps of survival. And I know I will use those throughout my life, but who am I kidding? I am not going to put myself in the position of being in those dangerous situations. I might, though. I've, I've been known to go there. You definitely will. And I'll be the guy that dies. But after this book, perhaps not. So hope you all enjoyed that. We're doing something fairly new on the show. You might have heard it in past episodes. We're giving away free stuff. Sometimes it's books. Sometimes I'm going to, I've decided I'm going to send random people like Kinder Eggs or just like crazy stuff just for being part of the podcast. So to, to get a package from us, we're going to send it to you wherever you are, no cost, just for fun. Everybody likes getting mail. Here's what you got to do. Call into this line, 209-920-7678. Wait, wait, what was that number? 209-920-7678. Now what that is, is it's our Google Voice something or other. I don't know. Yes, Chris, welcome to 2011. It's <laughs> Google Voice. Roach set it up. I don't know. But you're not going to speak to anybody. It's just a message system. And we listen to when you guys call in. Tell us about the show. Tell us what you liked, what you didn't like, where you listened it to, what you did today, what you ate for lunch. We don't care. We just want to hear from you guys. Create a little banter. We're going to pick some of those and we're going to play those messages on the shows if they're specifically funny or whatever. And we're also going to send that person a book, perhaps a hat. You know, you never know, or perhaps a pencil, something fun, but it's always going to be new. So call us 209-920-7678, leave a message, and then perhaps a way to get in contact with you, follow it up with an email or who knows, check us out on Facebook, Smart People Podcast. Let us know you sent it to us and we'll get that out to you. Follow us on Twitter, Smart People Pod, and don't forget, head over to iTunes, rate and comment, help us shoot up those charts. 209-920-7678. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Make sure to tune in next week. John and I are doing this weekly, weekly basis these days. The guests we are lining up are incredible. Everyone, I swear, I'm not just saying it because I run these things, is getting better and more interesting to listen to. So Smart People Podcast, thank you guys. We are out. See you later. Big thing. Dude, my singing voice is phenomenal. Thank you.